first things first. I haven't lost my mind. I'm, um, I'm just thinking of ways to occupy my mind. And I've had too much time. Too much time alone. And I think uh, I've started doing things that maybe I thought I let go of. Things that I, I thought that uh, I had moved on from. And I'll explain all this. Uh, I was in Beirut the first week of October last year. And um, the past two years of my life, um, I reconnected with Lebanon. I reconnected in a way on my terms. I spent four years away from Lebanon mourning. And uh, somebody once wrote to me uh, a very uh, a very wise sentence, death has majesty. And the idea that it heals with time strikes me as unpersuasive. I don't think I can properly move on from what happened to my father. Um, I know that it's been over six years since he was killed, and I know that six years ago um, I was thinking about that moment if not every minute I mean almost every minute of the day it consumed me to the point that I I left and I didn't set foot in Lebanon for years for nearly four years and uh By accident, when I was in Beirut, in January 2018, I sort of just simply decided to start doing the tour. Um, I wanted to help raise money for an internship in my father's name at the Grand Sarai, meant to be permanent, regardless of which prime minister occupies that seat. And uh, I did. I raised a stipend for an intern. And uh, really, the thought was just, I would do it once. I would do it one time, and just to relive that experience that I had stopped four years earlier. Um, and I love giving the tour for many reasons. And for people that know me, for people that have known me for quite some time, I think, uh, I think it's pretty clear that this is my calling. Uh, I think I can do variations of it. And the podcast is sort of a... It's a sidestep away from it, but it all goes back to the same story, which is Beirut's story. And um, my father became a small part of that very long, complicated, tragic story. So I started giving the tour again in a way to honor him. And for those that have been on the tour, it is still a tribute to Samir Asir. And that will never change. But my father, being able to reflect on his life, in particular in Martyr's Square, where he's buried today, uh, that was incredible to be able to take hundreds and then eventually thousands 
of guests to just next to my father's tomb and talk about all that has happened in Martyrs Square and all that has happened to Beirut the last hundred years and then far more immediately and more intimately uh, what happened to me and my family and my father. So I should be in Beirut now. I should be giving the tour now. And uh, I think I'm, I think I'm upset. I think I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm not in my element. And I know that I don't want to sound too selfish here. I don't want to sound selfish at all. I know that too many people on this planet feel isolated right now and feel uh, sad for many reasons and social distancing and just the fact that you can't approach your friends, let alone your family. Um, well, it's just a, it's a difficult, difficult time. And the last few episodes of the podcast, I've been trying to touch on that sort of uh, that journey from, you know, having a crazy scene in Beirut to having uh, absolute silence. And in, in my own case in, in New York, uh, the hardest hit city when it comes to COVID-19. So that's a very long way of saying that uh, the last three months, and then in particular the last month, uh, has been quite isolating. So a lot of reflection, a lot of solitude, a lot of... Uh, a lot of time alone and uh, you know I've I've kept a lot of physical memories of my father with me and wherever I go I take them with me if they're not in my suitcase they're uh, they're sort of stored somewhere and I know where they are all the time and if you just permit me um, one of them is a bow tie and uh, one day one day I will share stories that I wrote about uh, my father, and I'll, I'll get something published one day. And one of those stories is about this bow tie. And um, he, uh, he gave it to me two days before he died. Um, I think he had worn it in the late 1970s as a student in Austin, Texas. And if memory serves me right, he was flirting with the idea of bringing back the bow tie to the Lebanese political scene, which I thought was a bit uh, eccentric. Uh, he wanted to, to start wearing a bow tie again and then go on TV and talk about defense strategy and, you know, international relations and sort of have the host and the audience just sort of zeroing in on an eccentric bow tie. So anyway, I kept this with me. It's been with me uh, ever since. And uh, yeah, I'm not cool enough to wear a bow tie, so instead I just hold on to it. Uh, the second thing is a beret, a beret that uh, he used to wear all the time. And this was his way of going, uh, sort of his camouflaging himself, whether on the Corniche or uh, his preferred place, AUB campus, sort of he would just put this thing on and assume that no one would recognize him. Of course, everyone would recognize him, but it didn't matter. He still was certain that this would hide him, and hide his identity. Uh, he also had this, I think, safari 
hat that uh, didn't get him far. I think he tried this once or twice. It was pretty embarrassing. And a far less sophisticated beret. Um, still, that was his preferred style. And uh, I think jokingly he thought that he would go sort of, uh, he would hide himself this way. But deep down, I think he just liked wearing these things. And any excuse to put them on, he'd put them on. And he looked good in them. I'm lucky there are some photos I took of us walking on the Corniche together. And uh, you know, all those photos have a, uh, a beret. So, uh, there are many other things I've, I've kept with me, and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go too deep into this, other than just saying that there's physical uh, relics that I've held on to. And the last few days, I kind of... I'll share something intimate here. I, there, it was very difficult for me to start talking about what happened to my father. The first few weeks and for few months after it happened, I was able to pretend like this was just a TV show. And I could just sort of write it out. And, you know, it was all cameras, it was all microphones, and it was just endless, endless uh, acting. And I acted my way through the whole thing, and I didn't let myself collapse. And I think I, put, I kept myself together enough. So that when I left, uh, one sad moment, and it's just everything came out. Um, and I wasn't able to put it back in properly. And then it took me time to actually really think about what happened and really talk about it comfortably, at least in public. It actually took years. It was hard for me to even engage in certain topics without letting it without letting it drive me crazy. And I'll, these, these are silly examples, but at the time they really mattered. Um, I think the word Hezbollah terrified me. I was not afraid of Hezbollah, and I'm not afraid of Hezbollah. But I think... Uh, I think what happened to my father shook me to my core and that I was just waiting for anyone when talking about that group, any sort of naive defense of that group's weapons and what they're able to do. Uh, I think I would, I'd break down. And I avoided those situations as much as I could. Now, I was in Scotland for about four years, so there aren't that many, uh, there aren't many people talking about Hezbollah in the highlands of Scotland or uh, in, the, uh, in the pubs of Edinburgh. And it's just not a place where you engage uh, Middle East issues, which was good, I think. It kind of gave me a way to sort of shield myself from it. But... Uh, it was difficult to just be able to speak my mind openly about certain things without letting it break me inside repeatedly. It was almost like a repeated injury whenever that issue would come up. And that situation, I think, persisted even until I returned and started giving the tour. Even after I wrote a eulogy for my father and I shared it repeatedly in Martyrs Square.
I don't think I was able to really engage the issue. Um, even when I started doing this podcast, I don't think I could easily talk about Lebanese politics per se without being nervous. It just kept reminding me about what happened, and it kept reminding me of the assassination. Um, early October last year, I was in Beirut. I had been going back and forth between New York and Beirut, trying to sort of dance between two countries and two cities. And um, I was in Lebanon only to give the tour in early October. And I was meant to be there just for a few weeks and fly out. And I'm really committed to this tour. And I don't, don't want to just let it go. It, it, um, it's my strength. I'm, I'm good at it. And I know people enjoy it. And I know that, I know that it means something and that's important. It has purpose and I need that. And uh, out of nowhere, October 17, things changed. And it's one of those, I think it was an occasion where I actually was happy that I wasn't able to give the tour because I knew that, I knew that what was happening was extremely important and that, yes, we would need to shut the city down and we would need to move on and we would need to rebuild the country. And I, I say this in full confidence. I'm sure my father would have been very proud of that moment. So I just naturally, I think it just took a day or two. I had my microphones with me. I was, I had just started giving, I just started doing this podcast earlier in the year. I decided to focus in on what was happening and turn the podcast into a almost a collective memory, if you will, a, uh, a document of as many voices as possible reflecting on the moment from politicians to musicians to urban planners, architects, filmmakers, photographers, protesters, economists, I mean, any type of field that kind of was part of the moment, graffiti artists, painters, and uh, all sort of zeroing in on the need to move Lebanon out of its civil war era. Not the 15 years that we always talk about, not 1975 to 1990, the 45 years. 1975 until today. Um, an independent, sovereign, and sensible country that does not chase its citizens away. And I really, really, really just, I believed, and I still do, that there's no going back to October 16. But the weeks after, feeding in until, until late November, I felt myself able to finally, finally discuss 
the issues that I was not so easy, I was not able to properly discuss. And certain words that I was reluctant to use, I, I could use. And people that I wanted to criticize, I could openly criticize. And uh, just challenge authority and comfortably challenge it. I thought uh, this was the my own personal rebirth that I needed. And... Um, I think it's changed me forever in that sense that now I can, uh, I can, I, 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 in a sense, was able to move on in a way, a small way. I could, uh, I could channel that, that rage and anger and pain and, and sadness and all the emotions that come with it uh, into something productive. And I personally see this podcast as part of that, able to able to let it out and and engage of course not in a confrontational way and i'm not putting up putting anyone against the wall um it's the opposite i want to i just want to celebrate what the country means to all of us and in particular beirut but but not just beirut and um and any issues that kind of still impact the country so I felt really felt very good, and I was able to, and while recording episodes daily, and interviewing people daily, and co-host Elia, who was practically living in Martyr Square, she was able to record episodes daily. We grinded out. We just kept releasing episode after episode after episode, and suddenly we noticed tens of thousands of listeners tuning in, and it was. Um, it was a needed uh it was it was a needed sort of boost for this podcast to make it uh to make it i don't know make it more make it more than just sort of me engaging in in uh in guests and their stories i wanted it to have a maybe a sort of a slightly larger uh, purpose and i think it did it documented that that moment and it every episode that i'm still releasing sort of ties in to those to those months of protests and i know that once covid19 passes um it won't be long before people go back to the streets and their demands are not met and even if they're not on the streets now it's still people did not go packing up thinking they did it on the contrary there's a lot of work to do a lot of work to do and i think that work will begin after covid19 passes and uh Aside from sort of spending a lot of time alone and and sort of uh, holding on to these physical uh, physical relics of my father and thinking about him all the time these days in a, in a in a healthier way I think uh, just sort of imagining conversations with him about issues he probably would have never known about including COVID nineteen and. Uh, Dr. Fauci in uh, in the states, and you know Trump, uh, more concerned about his ratings during COVID nineteen than the Bachelor's uh, series finale. I mean, these are these are very very uh, very strange times. And this is my second home, the states, and I um, 
it is sort of uh, this country is going through its own issues. Very different, but uh, serious issues. And I just imagine what it would be like to talk with him about these things. So um, a few days ago, I did something that I sometimes do. I just sort of dove deep into Google's search and just sort of wandered around the endless articles that reference him or he was uh, sort of um, featured in. And this is going back to the 90s. And uh, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff you can zigzag your way through. And um, I knew my father had a blog. And I, I mean, I think more people know that his Twitter account, the last words, so to speak, were posted on his Twitter account and they're still there. It's just minutes before the, uh, the car bombing. But the blog, I never really, I never really spent too much time looking at. And I think it was a, it was a mistake because I just never noticed that he spent a lot of time on it, and it goes back to 2000 and, uh, 2012, so there's about a year or so. I, I hope I got that right. Is it 2012? It is, it is exactly a year and a half, June of 2012 until September 2013. So there's a lot of stuff here, and um, it kind of just, it sort of, it's a snapshot of his last year, and what it was like trying to uh, trying to stay hopeful and trying to also point the finger in, in its sort of honing in on serious structural problems in Lebanon and looking for a way out. And of course, I mean, it's not that long ago, but it's also, these are the Obama years and the Syrian war, it's at its peak. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of Syria in the uh, in the postings, but uh, also there's a lot of Lebanese issues, and some of these were actual they were Daily Star articles about uh, about the offshore gas and uh, there's some economics in here, and then there's just sort of the occasional occasional uh, light posting that is a sort of a, a heavier issue that I think my father was uh, trying to maybe make a little more appealing. And I stumbled across one piece that I remember him, I remember him mentioning to me and I didn't know what he was doing with it and I completely forgot about it. And I didn't know it was here. And I was making fun of him. Um, we were out for dinner and uh, he kept referencing uh, the, the frog in the kettle and the boiling water thing. And I was like, this is like, it's overdone. You can do better than that and think about a different way. He's like, no, there's no other way to describe what I want to describe. And I would just sort of tease him all the time about uh, his, what I thought. And this, I, I could maybe get away with it because I was his son. I could say this, that I thought he was a bit cheesy at times, but it's, it served its purpose. It definitely was a far more appealing way of describing an issue that I could ever do. Um, and I noticed that the final product is in the blog, and I just never picked up uh, on this. So, I'll probably do this from time to time, uh, especially now with COVID-19, and um, I'm leaning more on video these days. I need uh, to at least experience some virtual interaction 
there's always going to be an audio component that will that will never change. I will always focus on the audio uh, on audio episodes, and there will be some standalone audio episodes coming out as well. But uh, I'm exploring the video terrain as well, and I like it. I like learning from a very amateur sort of uh, from the from the ground up. I'm I'm trying my best to just sort of get this thing going in, in different ways. So, if you'll permit, I would like to read, and uh, it's a post from Wednesday, 27 June, 2012, and the title is, But Can the Frog Still Jump Out? I can still recall how fascinated I was when my middle school science teacher told us about the boiling frog phenomenon. Apparently, as some experiments had shown, If you put a frog in a pot of water and let the temperature rise very slowly, the frog's reflexes, which are geared to respond to sudden environmental changes, will not react to the gradual heating of the water. By the time the temperature reaches a fatally high level, the frog is incapable of jumping out, even if it wanted to. In fact, some experimenters claim that frogs subjected to such experiments show signs of actually enjoying the deadly increase in warmth, as long as it is very gradual. That's what came to my mind as I watched the smiling faces of happy strollers along the new elegant boardwalk of Beirut's beachfront. No one can blame those young men and women for looking happy, or for being oblivious to the dangerously gradual degradation which their country is experiencing. It is those who are in position to turn off the switch before it is too late who deserve the blame. Palliatives and placebos will not do anymore. A new round of national dialogue once every few weeks will be just that, if there is no will to actually do what it takes to reverse the dangerous slide downward. It would not be an easy climb up even in the best of circumstances, and the required effort is certainly a collective and not a partisan one. But without a genuine reassessment by our Hezbollah partners of the manor, in which the Lebanese theater is used in the pursuit of their and their allies' strategic regional and ideological goals, I am afraid a successful climb-up would be impossible. For years, some of us have been warning that the existence of a heavily armed organization outside the authority and control of the state, governed by a theological party, and allied, military and ideologically, with outside regional powers, presents dangers to the country that far outweigh any deterrence value to Lebanon of its arsenal. In addition to being incompatible with the Constitution and with any conceivable notion of state sovereignty, the current status of Hezbollah's weapons weakens the Lebanese state, which is the binding cornerstone of our diverse society, sharpens the already grinding structural faultiness among Lebanon's various constituent religious communities, erodes the state's ability to preserve law and order, and prevent the alarming spread of illegal weapons throughout the country, puts the country at risk of being part of other regional wars and conflicts that are heating up, and makes it impossible to reverse the deterioration in Lebanon's public administration, infrastructure, and investment climate. Experience has shown that all those fears were well-placed. Obviously, the national downward slide did not start with Hezbollah. Some would argue that it actually started more than four decades ago, when another attempt was made to reach a coexistence arrangement 
between the state's legitimate armed authority and another one outside it. Failure was inevitable and the cost to all was enormous. Of course, history will not repeat itself because there will be no attempt to try to change the current state of affairs by force. It would be foolish to even consider it. However, the cost to the country is still enormous and rising. It makes little difference that, now, it is a Lebanese, quote, resistance organization instead of a non-Lebanese, quote, liberation organization. Lebanon is paying a high price, and national erosion is getting deeper. Hezbollah needs to realize this and join hands with all others and agree on a roadmap to save the country from the abyss. A roadmap with a clear target. One which is grounded in the country's unity, its constitution, and the exclusive sovereignty and authority of the state. Nothing short of that will do. It is that critical. Is it too late for the frog to jump out of the pot? I don't believe so. But we are certainly in danger zone. And the clock continues to tick ominously, belying the smiles on the happy faces along Beirut's new elegant boardwalk. Feels good to actually uh, to find this. Uh, I f- sort of feel uh, a little bad for making fun of him when he was using the analogy, but uh, uh, I know that uh, I know that he knew how to deliver his message, and I think uh, I think he had a very, very, very uh, persuasive way of explaining big problems and uh, very creative ways of. Um, trying to get out of those problems so I'll do this from time to time and um, I just want to wrap up by uh, by saying that well I really wish I really really wish that he was here and I miss this man I miss this man so much um a few very, very, very good friends helped me find my way out of that uh, moment, and uh, these are close friends. I will, I will, I will always, you know, I'll never find the right way of telling them thank you for what they did. But uh, without them, I don't think I would. Uh, I don't think I would have managed my way. So. Uh, but that, that said, and all that aside, I really wish he was here. And I really wish uh, I could talk to him about, uh, about many things. Anyway. Thank you.